With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash tennis channel tennis podcast. We are on the road this week, but we are going to try this remotely. Our guest this week is Reem Abolel. She is a journalist based in Egypt, one of the few journalists covering this sport full-time based in the Middle East. Interesting conversation. We talk a bit about her perspectives uh, covering the sport as she does. Uh, she is in Singapore this week for the WTA Championships, the WTA Finals. We talk a bit about that event. We talk about Naomi Osaka, and we talk about this intersection about sports, tennis in particular, in the Middle East. Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic playing an exhibition in December in Saudi Arabia is a big topic this week on social media. We talk a bit about that. Uh, interesting conversation. I was glad we were able to get her perspective, much different from the uh, conventional perspective in the press room. Uh, we'll bring her on now. Uh, Reem. Why don't you tell everyone where you are and what just happened to you, just so people can hear about the rigors of uh, the job. Well, I'm in Singapore, and I actually arrived today, which is the third day of the tournament, which is not great. Usually I come early, but my first issue was that my passport got stuck in the British Embassy. Because uh, as an Egyptian, my life is basically applying for a visa. So first of all, <laughs> I got delayed by five days because of that. And then finally, I got here. We finished the tennis quite late today because uh, every single match in Singapore seems to have to go to three sets. So we finished quite late. I took the bus uh, from the tournament. The bus didn't take me to the right hotel, but crisis averted got a taxi back to my hotel and it's all good <laughs> it's, it's one in the morning you've covered three sets of tennis and uh i appreciate you're doing this um i, I let's i i want to talk about a number of things and you, you mentioned visas you're you're preempting some of my questions but um let's let's start with singapore it's um the the year-end championships S- serena is not there and yet Instagram, uh, social media suggests the players are very happy to be there. What, what's the vibe? I mean, what, what is that tournament like in, in the U.S. because of the time difference and because of, I, I think, some of it's Serena's absence and it's half a world away. It's, it's a bit hard to, uh, to, to get into. What, what's, what's it like on the ground? Well, this is my third time here, but I had a, uh, I came the first two years in 2014-2015, and then I skipped it for a couple of years, so I'm quite happy to be back because I totally understand what you mean because when I'm not here, it is difficult to connect to this tournament, but uh, it's, it's amazing. First of all, I remember from the very first session in 2014, it was a Monday night, and it was a full house, and I was like, wow, because that's I'm sure you know that's not easy to, to do that. Of course, um, attendance has fluctuated since. They also like uh, switched from single session to double session. All of these things usually affect uh, the number of people on site. Right. But to be honest, today I walked in and 
apparently everyone is dressed in Halloween costumes on site, <laughs> which was pretty hilarious. And there's actually <laughs> a lot going on in the fan village. Uh, the matches are obviously going long, which people enjoy. So, like, it's from for me, it's my first day here for this tournament, and I feel like there's a lot of people around. I, I thought it was a 12-hour time difference. It sounds like a 10-day time difference if they're in Halloween costumes. Um, I know. Is there, are, are people talking about next year and, uh, and, and the move? I mean, does it feel like a, a lame duck event, or are people, it sounds like everybody's still invested in this. I actually think it's quite the opposite, because it's the last year they want to go out with a bang. Uh, apparently tomorrow they're going to unveil, like, a monument, to show like the legacy of this tournament and so kind of it would have a lasting effect on the city. Billie Jean King is going to be there and I'm quite excited to actually go and see that. And uh, I feel like I've seen, because I came 14 and 15 and now I'm there, I can definitely feel the difference. Like I I feel that there's so many people on a weekday who are on site and and actually the the complex itself it's quite interesting. The Singapore in- Indoor Stadium is part of a big complex that has so many different things. There's another big national stadium that's on site. There's a lot of indoor arenas. There's like sports library. There are people like just regular people who live in Singapore who go to the gym and there's a, an aquatic center and like the whole place, to be honest, there's a lot more foot traffic to this entire sports hub than there was when I first came here. I mean, we, we all know what the, the prize money is going to be next year. I mean, players will win more money for winning the year-end championship than they may, they may win for winning a major, but it, it sounds like a bit of a pity to leave this market from what you're describing. I think even the players, I'm sure they're very excited because at the end of the day, it's like a record-breaking prize money for a women's tournament and stuff like that. And the fact that a city like Shenzhen is willing to commit to 10 years and all that is awesome. But I know like when I was talking to Naomi Osaka in China, and she was telling me, I really, really, really want to qualify because I know it's the last year in Singapore and I really want to go there. The players are obviously pampered. They get put up in the Marina Bay Sands, which is that very famous hotel that has that right, right. which we've seen a million pictures <laughs> of. And, and they like that, you know? Like, I was even just asking Wozniacki today, like, because you have days off here, do you just chill by the pool? And she was like, yeah, on the day off, we can eat by the pool, do this and that. And and I know they like that. So And it's also quite a cozy city. It's very small. The, the metro system is stunning. It's like the cleanest metro system I've seen in my life. And, uh, and it's just such a, a convenient place to go to because... Sometimes, I'm sure you know, there are tournaments where you have to think, oh, how am I going to get to to and from the hotel? How am I going to do that? Sometimes it's a bit difficult. I I went to Cincinnati for the first year this year, and I realized that we have to get on highways just to go back to my hotel. So Singapore is like the complete opposite of that. Cincinnati and Singapore don't remind you of each other? Is that what you're saying? At all. Can you imagine? That's weird, right? (laughs) You you mentioned Osaka, and you, you spent considerable time with her after the U.S. Open in, in China. And I'm wondering what sense you got talking to her. And and same person that we all interviewed before she was a major title winner, or do you feel as though she's entered this, this new phase along with, along with her endorsements and along with her profile, especially in uh, in the Far East? I mean, did it, did she seem familiar to you, or do you feel like she's undergoing this, this transformation that players often do? To be honest, John, when I spoke with her, I spoke, I had the, like proper sit-downs with her in February in Dubai and then again in uh, Beijing. 
uh, and I have to say, it's almost like she's the same person. There's nothing, there's literally no, the only thing, the only small difference I can say is that, but maybe because she knows me a bit better now as well, that she's a little bit more open and a bit, a bit less shy. Uh, because, uh, but other than that, when I spoke to her, I actually asked her, uh, what, what, I'm gonna tell you something and tell me how that sounds to you. A lot of people are saying you might be, become the highest paid female athlete on the planet. How does that sound to you? And she was like, yeah, this is news to me. I like that, that, it's like something she can't even fathom. And it's also something that she didn't even seem too excited about. The first thing she said, she's like, well, I guess my parents are going to be happy about that. Yeah, <laughs> you know geez. what I mean? She's not even <laughs> thinking about herself. And uh, I think what she's been doing because of everything that happened in the US Open final, I think for her, even almost as a defense mechanism so that she doesn't get distracted or overwhelmed by everything that happened, she's not thinking about it. She told me that when she was going into the talk shows, she was trying to find out as little as possible as what happened. She was like, I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I didn't want to know what happened. And I just want to keep working. I, I have a tournament. I have another one. I have another one. And that's what she's doing. Maybe in the off season, things will sink in and we might see a different Osaka next year. But as of right now, she's exactly the same person I talked to in February. This is always the, the tricky balance that athletes, you know, you, you want to capitalize while the market is hot, but you also you don't want to see players get so distracted that they can't do what ultimately got them in the position they're in anyway. Um, do you have any sense, if you had to guess, how, how 2019 is going to break for her? I have a feeling that she has an amazing team around her, and I know every player says that. But, right. but Naomi is very close with her parents, and her mother travels with her. She's very close with Sasha, who seems Sasha Bayan, with Serena's ex-hitting partner, among others, also what it was, and a lot of people. And and he also has kind of the same mentality. In his press conference here, he said the same thing. It's like, uh, he said, I was with Serena when she won 12 Grand Slams. And the Monday after winning the slam, she was always back on court working. And he's bringing that mentality to Naomi as well. It's like, you, you finish the US Open, you want it? Come on, you have Tokyo next, you have to work. And I feel, and even her agent, Stuart Douglas, is a great guy. He works with a lot of great players. He, play, he works with Chung. Right. He works with Kevin Anderson. He works with Agnieszka Radwanska. And if you see, there's a common thread between these people. They're very nice people, very grounded people. So I feel like she has the right people around her to keep her grounded. And I also think that the way she was talking to me, she was telling me, I don't see myself as just winning one Grand Slam. She's like, there is there isn't a single tournament that should define someone's career. And she's like, that's why for me, the U.S. Open is not everything because that's not how I operate. And I like that. I feel like this, she's, she's way hungrier than anyone would expect for someone who just won a first slam. I, you hear the same thing, that uh, apparently she was, you know, enough interviews, I've got to get back to the practice court. I, I just think that she is dealing, we see, you know, Ostapenko wins the French Open and her profile is elevated. You know, Sloan Stevens last year wins the U.S. So I, I just feel like what Naomi Osaka is about to confront with the Japanese market, with the Tokyo Olympics, less than two years away, I, I just think this is a challenge that uh, is bordering on unprecedented. I mean, the, the attention she is going to get next year is going to dwarf other first-time major winners. So, so I'm heartened to hear you say that. Um, that's, that sounds encouraging, what you're reporting from the ground. Yeah, I totally agree with you that it is unprecedented. The only thing I can say is that I think that Naomi Osaka is one of the most unique 
athletes I've ever met. I've literally never met anyone like her. I've never met anyone who, like she describes herself as weird and she's so open about it. And she's like, yeah, I, this is how I am. Like, I, she, she's so different. Like, right. in every single way and how she sees herself and how she sees others and how she analyzes, even just talking about her background. And, and I have to say that she's someone from a very young age, she's been subjected to a lot of things. Uh, for example, there are a lot of people online who, are, who uh, keep sending her, like they kind of attack her, her choices a bit in terms of why are you presenting Japan? Why aren't you talking enough right. about you being right. Asian? All of that stuff. And when I asked her how, if that affects her, you know what? She, she's, she's basically trying to do the best she can, but she's been dealing with this since she was young. This is not new to her. So I think we also underestimate the kind of stuff that someone like her went through. No, I, I like the other point you made, too, about the unapologetic weirdness. Um, I mean, you, you see a little bit of that with, with Tsitsipas on the men's side. And you, sure. people people forget this. Midway through the U.S. Open, I don't, I don't know if you were... Do you remember Billie Jean King sort of reached out to Naomi, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically said, don't, don't let yourself be bullied. It's okay to be weird. Um this was midway through a Grand Slam tournament, and I, th- there are a, lo- a lot of angles to this uh, story, but, but I, think, I think you're right. I think that's a really good point, that there are issues she's dealt with already, but there also does seem to be this real self-possession, and I'm not going to be someone I'm not, and I may be a little quirky to you, but I, I am who I am. Yeah. Um, let me. Well, let me... I hope. I, I, obviously, we can, never, we can never know what's going to happen, but I definitely hope she holds on to that. For as long as she possibly can, because it's so refreshing. Wholeheartedly agree. Let, let me um, let's talk about you a little bit. You you mentioned Egypt. Um, people have heard uh, a, a bit of an accent. What, t- tell everyone sort of what your background is, because um, you are speaking of unique. Uh, you are not a, a conventional colleague in, in the press room. T- tell me how you got into this game and where you're based. Give us a little biography on you. So I I was actually born in Kuwait, but I left there when I was seven. Uh, moved to Cairo, lived most of my life in Cairo. Uh, I always loved all sports, but my father used to play some tennis just for fun, and I and every single Egyptian played squash, so I played some squash, and and I always loved sport. But for me, the sport only uh, existed in the summer when I could watch Wimbledon and the French Open on free-to-air TV. The rest of the year, I didn't really have much access to match. Um, and then I, I'm a computer science major, worked at IBM for a bit, but I was not enjoying it at all. And I started on the side working part-time for a sports website. And because they didn't know much about tennis and I did, they told me, why don't you take the lead on the tennis? And then I realized I was enjoying my part-time job more than my full-time job. So I moved to Madrid and I did a master's in sports journalism there. And it was a program organized by uh, Eurosport. And then I did an internship at Eurosport in Paris, worked on the program Game Set and Maths with Mats Falander. And then, uh, yeah, uh, next thing I know, I'm in Dubai. I'm working for a daily sports newspaper called Sport 360. And I grew within the newspaper and eventually I became the managing editor of the website. And then now I'm freelancing. And I'm living between Cairo and Dubai, and I'm traveling the tour all year round. There, there are a lot of us who came to sports media through strange channels and as, as second careers. I, I think your story might uh, might 
might take the cake. Um, what, what are some of the what, what are some of the uh, you, you mentioned the, you mentioned the visa issues. Um, what, what are some of the other challenges you face covering sports where you do? Um, I think that when I started, I think nobody understood why I was doing. Why right. is someone who works at IBM, very stable gig, getting promoted, doing really well? Why am I leaving that and going to cover? and specifically tennis. So you're not surrounded by anybody who does what you do. Uh, that was one thing. And then obviously the, the people who care about me, luckily my parents were on board. They didn't care, they always trusted me. But like my close friends and some other people, they never really got, like they always thought it was a phase. Uh, so that was weird at the beginning. In terms of being from where I'm from, at the end of the day, I'm usually the only Arabic speaker in the entire tournament sometimes. Right. Sometimes there are a couple of TV um, reporters from being sports or something, but in general, I'm, I'm usually the only one from my region. And there's so many misconceptions about where I'm from, and, and you get to a point where either you're constantly trying to explain to people what the Middle East is really like, or you just ignore it and you just go with it. I don't know. Can, can I ask you, uh, can, can, we, can we indulge the clearing up perception option? I don't know it's people think that I'm a one-off or I'm weird or like I, oh you're definitely not a typical Egyptian just because I I speak uh, whatever I speak English and Spanish and I'm doing this and I'm traveling the tour and I'm not saying it's a common job but we are not one thing I mean there are 100 million people in Egypt alone 20 million people in Cairo so the, the, the fact that people don't know how much passion we have for the sport like I always see people mocking the Dubai and other tournaments that they're empty stands and I'm like first of all the Dubai tournament is one of the most attended tournaments I see year round and when you have an empty Monday session I'm pretty sure you can guarantee an empty Monday session anywhere in the world like you go even sometimes at Indian Wells because people want to be outside. They don't want to be in the main stadium. They'd rather enjoy the fan experience outside. You can see that the stadium is empty in the middle of the day in the heat. So right. these are the kind of things like, no, it's not just about money. First of all, there's only a few countries that have money in the Middle East. <laughs> the rest of them are... There's no, I, I, think, I, think that's a really important, I think that's a really important point. You, you, you brought up Saudi Arabia, which obviously has an, an extra layer of resonance... Uh, this week, um, mm-hmm. in, in in tennis circles, I mean, this is obviously a, a global issue, but in tennis circles, Nadal and Djokovic are supposed to play there in a few weeks. And you know, a, a colleague of mine, Stanley K, wrote a column yesterday, sort of ca- cautioning them against playing in certainly tennis social media circles. This exhibition uh, has elicited strong opinions. You you have strong thoughts on this? Whether to, whether to play, whether this is an endorsement, whether I don't know. I mean, where where, where do you stand on this? The, the contract is with the government, and I think that once you sign a contract with the government and then something serious like this happens, there are so many elements that um, that are involved. And I understand that as athletes, they have platforms and they should use these platforms to try and, and, and make a statement and, and speak for human rights and all of these things. And I think that that would be great. But I also think you can't just drop the onus on the player immediately and ask them within a few days of a big incident like that happening to tell them to do something because there's so many things that are involved, especially when, again, you're dealing with a government um, 
Novak and Rafa in particular have been coming to Abu Dhabi for years for the exhibition there, the Mubadala Tennis Championship. They've also been going to Qatar. And I think that there are many things to consider. Yes, everyone keeps saying this is just about money. Probably they said yes to this because of the money. Uh, but also, I know that Saudi Arabia is quite a big market. It's the biggest country in the Arabian Gulf. And if I am their teams, in their minds, they're probably thinking, you know what, we've been going to the UAE, we've been going to Qatar. Saudi is the biggest country in that region, in that Arabian Gulf region. Why aren't we there? So once the Saudi market comes knocking on their door and tells them we're opening our doors for you, I also understand that why don't we go? Now, is the situation is they are in a very, very difficult situation because... Yes, there are a lot of people asking them to do something, but there's also a commitment with a government that needs to be looked at very carefully, and they need to be very tactful about it in all cases. I, I want to be careful, especially given what, what you said about some of the sensitivities that you sometimes have to exercise. But if, if they decided we're not going to play, if, if they took the stand that some of these media companies have withdrawing from conferences in Saudi Arabia or some of the financial institutions have. If, if Nadal and Djokovic said, you know what, I, I'm going uh, to withdraw my, my acceptance, how would that go over in Saudi Arabia? How would that be perceived in, in the country? Do you have a sense of that? I think, first of all, the thousands of fans are going to be really upset because they're going to feel they have nothing to do with this. And also, it sends a statement where they are condemning the country, right? Like, if they do that. Because at the end of the day, this is an ongoing investigation. There's so much news coming out every single moment. And I think it's actually smarter not to immediately say something until you fully understand what's happening. Obviously, these days, we know a lot more than we did a week ago, you know? But um, I think that... I think it would... There are ripple effects. There are countries that are allies to other countries, you know, like... uh, like even in the U.S. is allies with Saudi Arabia, which is why you, there are certain things that are always being considerations taken. You know, um, the UAE is an ally of Saudi Arabia. If uh, Novak is supposed to be in Abu Dhabi, what is five days after the Saudi Arabia? Right, right, right. So you, at the end of the day, if something is seen as disrespect. It's, it's different. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't pull out, and I'm not saying they should. Okay, and I, at the end of the day, this is a very personal decision to them. Um, and at the end of the day, also, there are so many countries in the world that are making terrible violations. And there are sports events there that are touted and not just touted, they're being celebrated, you know. Um, I'd rather that's not the case. I'd love it if every single person who wants to speak out about something can do it or wants to stand for something big. I'd love it if that's just the only consideration. But for them, maybe there are more factors to consider. Um, who knows? I don't, I, I don't know what's going on in their camps, but as far as I know right now, up until now, they're going. No, I, I, th- I think, yeah, yeah. I, know. I mean, I, th- I think if they weren't going, they, they would have said that. I mean, it's... Um, and I think the calculus for Djokovic and Nadal might not be the same. I mean, I think whether it's their ambitions after tennis or the way they've branded themselves or the way the Middle East figures into their income and what they plan to do post-tennis. Personally, and you don't have to respond to this, I'm surprised that uh, Djokovic in particular has not been um, more outspoken, not necessarily pulling out, but just sort of at least engaging this. Someone who's as socially aware and as socially interested 
as he is, I'm surprised he hasn't uh, ha- had more to say about this. But I guess we'll see how this unfolds. Um, I wanted to ask you, when I first started covering tennis in the late 90s, um, and for, for whatever it's worth, they were very entertaining in different ways. But there were three Moroccan players, I think, in the top 40 or so. Um, we don't have that anymore. Where, where, are, the, um, where, where are the players from, uh, from the Middle East and the Arab world? How come we haven't seen more, more players? Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. I think, first of all, the three Moroccans you're talking about, Yunus Anewi and Karim Alami and Hijam Arazi, they were a phenomenon. They were, that was not the norm. That was, right. that was weird. Even until today when I speak to Yunus or Karim, because they're around, they both work in Qatar, when I speak with them, they, they're always like, we still don't know why we made it, <laughs> because it was a one-off thing. Um, what happened also is that after they uh, retired, the, um, one of the things Eunice was telling me is that the, the, the Moroccan Federation or the Moroccan government didn't grab them and say, let's start programs, let's get your expertise, let's have you as consultants. As far as I know, maybe Hisham Arazi recently was involved in some stuff, but the only country that actually recently decided, or like in the last several years, decided to bring them on board was Qatar. Because Qatar decided, we actually want to have sports programs, why don't we bring them? But in the rest of the federations, there's barely any funding, there's barely any system, there are no national tennis centers, there is no proper program. So when there is a player who is talented, there is zero guidance. They don't know what to do, they don't know what to, where to train, they barely have any funding. Their parents have to be the ones who are like, have to come from a wealthy family so that family can fund their careers. But also, the lack of know-how is worrying. Like there's a, I remember talking to a junior Egyptian junior who was top 10 and he had no clue where to go or what to do in terms of the transition from junior to senior he just didn't know I put him in touch with Patrick Muratoglu and he occasionally goes there when he can afford it but the, the the, when you compare that to countries where you know exactly, okay, this is the last year playing juniors, these are the senior tournaments you're going to, this is where you're training, this is how we're going to help you build your physique, all of the stuff, we don't have that at all. I'm, I'm, listening, I'm listening to you say this, and I feel like tennis really animates the other point you made, that how sloppy this phrase Arab world is, that in some countries we assume there's great wealth and we hear about Dubai and then Saudi Arabia, the fees, and yet you're, you're describing players who it sounds like are really coming from emerging countries. I, I was looking at, at Anz Jabur, who's from T- Tunisia, where the per capita income is about $13,000 a year. Um, for, for the players you're describing, or, or whatever, for, for Anz Jabur, who comes from, uh, you know, who, who does not come from the wealth of, of the Gulf, how does a player like that make it? I mean, how, how is that even begin? I mean, some of these, Dave, some of these federations are probably, you know, making $10,000 a year. How does a player make it who comes from uh, from that kind of a background? Honestly, she's an anomaly, and Malik Jaziri is an anomaly. It's 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 shocking that I, it, every day I see them do well. For me, I am amazed that they're doing that because I think that with Ons, the good thing is her family supported her well. Because at the end of the day, there's also a culture issue where in in most Arab countries. And that even was the case with Yunus Alainewi, who told me that his father was so upset with him that he chose sport over like a, a career. Like his brother was, he tells me my brother was a banker. He was always seen as the good brother because he was a banker. He got to go and have a proper finance job. Whereas Yunus became number 14. I was going to say, he was, he was only a t- top 15 tennis player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet somehow he was the bad son. 
uh, because it's a culture thing, uh, you need to, it's what kind of up to you. You can't keep um, studying unless you have, you go like the, you go and study in the States, for example, in a, in a university. But like most, most people, we don't have any academies. We don't have that system at all in the Arab, in the Arab world where you have a sports academy or a tennis academy where you're studying, but you're also playing. So parents are very reluctant to allow their players, to, to their kids to just be, okay, go become professional players. It's such a huge gamble. Because again, it's a gamble because there's also no sponsorship money. There aren't any local companies that will back a tennis player. A local company will back a football team, a soccer team, but they will not back a tennis player. So it's a huge gamble. You're literally going out there saying, "I'm, I'm," and and in Egypt or in North African countries, again, they're not wealthy at all, like the Arabian Gulf. And it's a big deal to go and and say, "Okay, I'm going to try and become a tennis player," and really have no one backing you. The reason Ons maybe made it, it's a bunch of things. First of all, when she was 15 years old, she won the French Open junior title. That was a big news, especially that France and Tunisia are, like, close. You know, and there's a big French influence in Tunisia. Right, so right. So it created a big, you know, there was a big hype around her. So there's maybe a few sponsors that helped her. But also, she's a one-off. She grew up playing with boys because there weren't enough girls playing. So she developed a, a men's game. It's a very unique kind of game, you know. Um, and she also had someone like Selima Safar to look at, who is also Tunisian, and she was the first Arab woman ever to crack the top 100. And like Billie Jean King has been telling us the last two days, you see it, you want to be it, you know? So she, at least she also saw that someone from her country managed to do it. But she, again, she's an anomaly. I feel like we should point out, too, that every player you've mentioned is great fun to watch. I don't know if that's uh, by accident or design or coincidence, but um, if people out there have not seen Anz Jabber play, now up to a career-high ranking, I just saw. Uh, they ought to. Let me ask you one more question. I just, I, just did a, um, I just did this radio show in Toronto, and they asked me this question. Now I'll ask it to you because I didn't have a good answer. Um, how many majors will be won in 2019 by players who are not currently ranked in the top three? So how many majors in 2019 get won on the men's side by not Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, or Novak Djokovic? What do you think? Mm, Maybe two? Really? I think so. I don't know. We don't know what Rafa's health is like. Novak is probably going to win two. But I think the other two are up for grabs. I don't know. Um... I'd be amazed if Roger wins next year again. I mean, well, he keeps blowing my mind, but I don't know. I'd be amazed. I, I, I say with with Roger yeah, and Serena, it's... A bit of momentum. Yeah, I, I feel like we, everybody is sort of... you. You, we, we, we take pains not to write anyone off, and everyone sort of has a sentimental uh, streak here. But if you look at Roger's results after the Indian Wells final... Uh, he, he, he got his major in Melbourne. He won his title. He went to Rotterdam. He got to the finals in Indian Wells and could have won that. And after that, it, it was a um, it, it was a pretty dicey year. But um, we shall see. I'm definitely um, not writing him off. But, yeah, I feel like he's – the less he plays, and he's someone who used to play a lot, and it's only just the last few seasons that he's trickling down to a few tournaments a year, I think that's also affects him because then it raises the pressure – on him to do well at the ones that he does play. So I that's, think that's, that's, a, that's, my that's a really good point. And I, I think that's also something we, we don't talk enough about with Serena Williams, that when 
her schedule is as curtailed as it is, these matches become more and more uh, pressure-filled. Um, all right. I'm yeah. looking at my clock, and I'm cringing because it is 2.09 a.m. your time. Um, go to sleep, my friend. Go to sleep. This... Uh, this this was great though. I really I really appreciate this. Um, so, someone had someone had texted me and said you really we you really ought to get Reem on your podcast and I commend them. Uh, thanks for doing this. This this was really helpful. And this was great. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure to chat. Go to sleep and we'll do it again soon. Cheers. Take care. All right. Thanks to Reem for uh, for a good conversation. Jamie, I want to bring you in. I'm in an airport. You're in the studio. Full disclosure, you may get some background noise. But uh, what do you think of that conversation, especially? What, what do you think about this Nadal Djokovic exhibition in Saudi Arabia? Our colleague Stanley Kay wrote a piece about it, obviously, after the death of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. This is a much different uh, scenario than when the two players signed up for it. But uh, what, what are your thoughts here? For sure. Uh, I think first, Reem's opinion here is really important, and it's good to... It was nice to hear her talk about not only covering the sport from her perspective, but also her opinions on this instance in particular, which, as you said, has sort of dominated the conversation the past few days. Personally, I think that it's tough that we're not hearing any, that it's been kind of radio silence from both Nadal and Djokovic on this. Um, You know, it was unfortunate timing of their scheduled corporate responsibility tweets that they sent out about the exhibition. You know, it was one day after everything was first reported. So that that kind of set things off on the wrong foot to begin with. But I think because it's been now a few weeks um, that we haven't heard anything and we have, it's not like these guys are in the off season, they're just like hanging out and, and kind of not on social media. I mean, we've seen Nadal helping in with floods in Mallorca and we, we, you know, everyone, they're tweeting and they're there. So um, the fact that they're sort of ignoring this is something that's kind of bothering me. Um, you know, if this was a situation with a professional team or uh, something like that, we would expect the organization to at least release a statement or a comment that, you know, even if the decision hasn't been made, that they're aware and, you know, kind of just keeping everyone informed. The fact that we haven't had any of that, um, you know, I, I think is is aggravating. And, uh, you know, the players as kind of individual entities in tennis, I think, should be held to the same standards as we would uh, for any other professional sports organization or, or leader of an organization. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would go farther and say, maybe even more so here. I mean, this is not uh, an event that, hey, it just happens to be played in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this is an event that's being staged by the government. Um, it's, it's a complicated situation. I also think it's, it's a fluid situation. I mean, this is, uh, you know, who knows what, where the story is going to go by the time they, they actually play. I just, I can't figure it out. I mean, I think we can argue about this morally. Um, a lot of people on social media seem to buy into this slippery slope theory and if we're gonna you know if, if we're gonna tell players they ought not to play saudi arabia what about these other rogue states what about countries that are environmental terrorists um it, it does i admit get into a, a dangerous game at the Agreed. same time i would i would contend that uh the situation in saudi arabia is extraordinary and exceptional and i would not uh i'd be a little cautious about drawing uh some some equivalencies but i i just i mean let, 
you know, you, you can make a moral case one way or the other. Sports and politics should mix. I, I get that. I just don't understand, just even practically speaking, with this situation as fluid as it is, with the potential for this to go in so many different directions, unpleasant directions, I just can't figure out why they wouldn't say, listen, we're going we're gonna to pause this. And this right. is not a condemnation. We just want to exercise caution, given that this controversy is still going on, given this investigation is still going on. I'm That's thinking next I, year, we, we, we take a pass for this year, and we're going to monitor this as everybody else is. I, I can't figure out why they are taking this risk that I think in the case of Djokovic in particular, who really has these, and this is to his credit, but I think Djokovic really has ambitions in a way that Nadal perhaps doesn't of having this global platform right, and of say, looking beyond person. tennis. Right. I, I just... I, I, I don't get it. I, that's why I think it makes it even ickier. The longer they wait, you know, to break the silence at this point, the more uh, the more important their response, initial response and first comment on this situation becomes. And I think that sort of puts them in an unfair situation. You know, if they would have said something right after um, – that was even if it didn't really supply us with any information just you know as you said we're aware of the situation and we're figuring out w- what the right course of action is fine at least you're acknowledging it um i think the the longer we wait uh the more backlash they're going to receive for whatever their decision is um and i think that just kind of puts everyone in a in a weird situation um and and kind of continues to bring up all the things that we're talking about so it's uh yeah it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's some no I, there, there's some history here too that we should allude to. I mean, say what you will about John McEnroe, he is still decades later known for declining to go to South Africa at, at the height of apartheid for a similar exhibition. I, I think people that don't necessarily know tennis are are calling this. Uh, I've seen this alluded to as a tournament, and I think we should also be clear. This is a one-night-only exhibition. These are two guys that are, you know, worth deep into nine figures in wealth. There are no ranking points here. I, I just, I, I don't, you sort of the most basic risk-reward, uh, the most basic risk-reward calculus, and I, I just, this, this fails it miserably as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Do you think the, we'll the, the prize money or, you know, the money, not even prize money, I should say, the... the compensation yeah yeah, being paid here is uh something that's being considered on behalf of the players i'm I'm sure this is an extraordinary amount of money right that's that's Um, a thing that bothers stories too of you know players players playing um players going to saudi arabia and in athletes and other sports and it's just it's a completely you know the the economy is just completely different i'm sure this is an extraordinary amount of money at the same time these are two guys who are already you know, wealthy to the point of abstraction. Again, this does nothing to their legacy. Nadal could win love and love, and people won't think much of it. Djokovic right. can win love and love. It's sort of inconsequential. And I just, you know, I think there's a lot going on here. I think that, you know, w- William Morris and IMG, has they, they have ties in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I think this is more than just Nadal and Djokovic getting on the phone and, and getting uh, an offer like this. But I do think, I, I think you're right. I mean, clearly those tweets that they both sent out were part of their, you know, I'm sure those were yeah, was a requirement. tweets. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that was part. And, you know, that, that happens more and more. That's, uh, which is fine. But the, the timing was unfortunate. Not just this being the, the, the days after we're learning about the, the murder of the Turkish, the, the embassy in Istanbul, but also 
this is coming the same day that conferences and investment banks and, and media companies are all pulling out of similar events in Saudi Arabia. And right. I, I think that, you know, a, a lot of this is going to basically a, a, a branding effort, right? I mean, this, this is part of uh, using sports a, as a way to set an agenda and, you know, make a statement about a culture and make a statement about values. I mean, this, this is, I, I think the fact that this is not, um, again, this is not just an exhibition that happens to be staged in Saudi Arabia, but this is part of, of state-sanctioned efforts at branding. Uh, this, this is a government operation. I, I think that also is uh, a point that should be stressed. But um, anyway, I guess we will, uh, we, we will see how this, this plays out. I think you and I are, uh, are, are on the same page here. Right. And the ironic part of it all is that this is set to occur on December 22nd, I think. So we are still right. so far out from that, uh, you know, scheduled date. So um, I think a lot of things are probably going to happen between now and then. Yeah. I mean, you know, and again, think, think about where this story was. I mean, you know, we, we our president was uh, speculating that this could have been the work of rogue killers. And uh Today, he has a very, very different take. So you think about the fact that this story is still very much fluid, um, a considerable range of outcome here. I, I just don't know why both Nadal and, uh, and Djokovic are sort of subjecting themselves to these kinds of uh, to the risks. But, um, Jamie, unfortunately, I need to jump on a plane. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking. Maybe we'll do this uh, in person next week. Sounds good. Don't miss your flight. Make sure you uh, grab a bottle of water, you know, do all of the the pre-flight rituals. Make sure I don't keep you from those. And thanks for your time. It's like a tennis player. Uh, there's no pre-flight interview. But, uh, Jamie, thanks. Thanks to our guest, Reem Abulel. And we will, uh, we will do this again next week. Jamie, why don't you take us out by telling people where they could subscribe to this podcast if they so desire? They can go on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts from, and they should subscribe and leave a review, and we will have a more conventional episode for you uh, next week. Very good. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again next week.